0: Okay, title of the message this morning is um, Running the Race. Running the Race. We left off last time with... And by the way, I want to apologize for all the... The rotation of the pastors has gotten messed up because of vacations and everything. Um, I'll be preaching, I think, the next five out of six weeks, and so we'll be able to get back into a uh, groove with 1 Corinthians. I know how easy it is to forget when you go to a different pastor each week, you know what I mean? Okay. We left off last time with uh, Paul in verse 23 saying that he does everything for the sake of the gospel. Whether it's choosing not to take payment or aid from the Corinthians for his ministry or it's becoming all things to all men that he might save some, He does it all for the sake of the gospel. But that's not the extent of his thought here. Paul goes on to say in the latter part of verse 23 that he does this so that he may become a fellow partaker in the gospel or that he may share in the gospel's blessings as the ESV says. Says, I like blessings better than than partaker in the NASB here. Um, Paul wants to receive the blessings of the gospel alongside his Corinthians. So what, what does he mean when he says that? Let's read on. Verse 24, 1 Corinthians 9, 24. Do you not know, Paul says, that those who run in a race all run, but only one, receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may win. Verse 25, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we, Christians, an imperishable. Therefore, term of conclusion, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. The Apostle Paul is obviously using sports metaphors here, which he knew they would understand since sports was very prevalent In the Corinthian culture, Paul is quick to point out to these Corinthians that they must run the race in such a way so as to get the prize. Everyone does not get a participation trophy. That would have sounded absurd to Paul and to the Corinthians and to all Greeks at that time, especially as it sounds absurd to most of us here today. Paul instead sharply, sharply, very conveys that Christians must persevere to the end of the race to get the prize, which is what? Eternal life with God, right? I've got news for you. The prize is not 72 virgins as the Muslims say it is. And the prize is not that you get your own planet to rule as the Mormons say it is. The prize is not nirvana through the union of Brahman that the Hindus say can be reached through living many reincarnated lives while accumulating a lot of good karma. And the prize is not liberation or freedom from endless cycles of death, life, and rebirth like the Buddhists believe. The prize, folks, for the Christian is eternal life. Eternal life with the triune Godhead, the uncaused cause and the unmoved mover. And that prize can only be achieved one way, one way, no matter what Oprah says, no matter what Dr. Phil says. They both say there are many ways to heaven. The only way to heaven is through faith and confession in the incarnate Christ, the Son of the living God, who manifested himself in human flesh in order to sacrifice his life on Calvary's cross to atone for your sins and mine, washing them away completely with his shed blood and securing a place as adopted sons and daughters of our heavenly father as we lay claim to an eternal inheritance prepared for us from before the foundations of the world. And how, folks, do we go about finishing this race? Paul tells us by bringing himself into that same, by by bringing us into that same metaphor. In verse 27, he says, but I buffet my body and make it my slave, lest possibly, after I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul here has done what any Good pastor does. Most pastors today don't do this, but they used to. Today they're afraid. Paul became transparent, he allowed transparency. He lets the Corinthians know that he is not exempt from being disqualified from the race. I believe this shows Paul's humility. No Christian or pastor, for that matter, should think that they've arrived or have the attitude that they've arrived. When Paul talks about being disqualified from the race, he is suggesting that you should not, I should say, is he suggesting that you should not have assurance of your salvation Is he suggesting that you can lose your salvation? No, he's not. However, it is very easy to mistakenly derive that from these verses and some of the other verses that Paul writes concerning the Christian walk as a race metaphor. So let's take a deep dive, folks. We have to take a deep dive here because there's too much confusion amongst just the everyday Christian that I talk to about this subject, okay? So let's look at what Paul's actually referring to here when he talks about about being disqualified from the race. As I said, Paul talks about finishing the course or finishing the race a lot in his excerpts from scripture. Let's look at a few examples. In Acts chapter 20, verse 24, you don't have to turn there, Paul talks about simply finishing the course. That's the first time that we see it. In Galatians chapter two, he gets more specific. He says, beginning in verse one, now remember this, we read this a few sermons ago, and we talked about this a few sermons ago, but not in the context of running a race. We talked about it for different reasons. He says in Galatians 2 1, then 14 years after I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me also. And I went up by revelation and communicated unto them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to them which were of reputation, lest by any means I should run or I had run. In vain. Now, here Paul's referring to the gospel he was preaching to the Gentiles. More specifically, telling the Gentiles that they didn't need to be circumcised to be saved. Like the Judaizers, remember? The Judaizers were telling them that they did need to be circumcised to be saved. So Paul's basically saying, look, guys. Look, elders in Jerusalem, look, leaders of the church. Am I preaching wrong? If I'm preaching wrong, the wrong gospel, then I'm running the race in vain. So you guys tell me. That's basically what he was doing in Jerusalem. So in Galatians 5, verse 7, Paul speaks of the same subject and says to the Galatians, You, he's talking to them now, you were running the race so well. Who hindered you? In other words, who crept in and instructed you that you had to be circumcised in order to be saved? You were running the race so well. You believed that you didn't have to be circumcised to be saved. And now these Judaizers have crept in and they've told you that you have to be circumcised. And again, he says, if you're running the race in that way, then you're running in vain by way of a false gospel, right? And he basically says, I'm Johnny on the spot, and I'm here to tell you that you might be disqualified if you continue to run by this set of rules, the rules that the Judaizers have placed on you. Everybody see that? Okay, And remember, here's the most important part. The Judaizers were so effective with their false doctrine that they actually caused Paul, of all people, Paul, two-thirds of the New Testament Paul, to feel the need to go to Jerusalem to run this by the ruling elders. He was questioning himself. So these guys had a lot of influence to get him to second-guess himself. I mean, this is, you know, Joe Revelation here. (laughs) He saw Jesus. And then in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, Paul says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach, In the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, the day of Christ, I will have reason, Paul, I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain or toil in vain. Now, that's a very interesting passage. Paul was saying in verse 16 that if the Philippians hold fast to the gospel, if they finish the race, then he, Paul, will know that he didn't run the race in vain or toil among them in vain. This is the only passage that I'm aware of where Paul equates his finishing the race with those finishing the race that got saved under his ministry. Do you see that? The only passage, I'm going to say it again, where Paul equates his finishing the race with those finishing the race that were saved under his ministry. In essence, he is saying that their salvation and their perseverance to the end of the race, okay, will validate the authenticity of his gospel that he preached to them. Then there's Philippians chapter 3, 11 through 14. It is here that the apostle Paul says, in verses 8 and 10, 8 through 10, he talks about sharing Christ's sufferings and and death, frankly, his sufferings and his death. Then, beginning in verse 11, Paul says, In order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead, okay? Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect. See, Paul doesn't think he's arrived here. He's he's not so arrogant as to say, eh, race is no big deal. I'll get the prize. Uh No, he says, not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ. In other words, Christ laid hold of me first. He elected me first. And he says, now I got to run the race so that I'm faithful, so that I finish it and I get the prize that God originally said I could have before the foundations of the world. Verse 13, brethren, he says, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. Can't get any more clearer than that. But one thing I do, Paul says, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Not worrying about my past failures. Not worrying about my past life. Not worrying about my past sins. I'm not worried about the things I did yesterday. I'm fixing my gaze on the prize and the race that's still ahead of me. Okay? The upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He says, I press on toward the goal of the prize. Prize is the goal. Now, what is he saying here? I should say, what he is saying here uh, is that he's positionally, this is very important, he's positionally obtained his place in heaven. We all have. He refers to it as being perfect, quote unquote, perfect but he has not fully obtained it or fully realized it. It has not become unto full fruition because he's still in this body. He's still in this tent and he's still on planet earth. So his position in Christ has not been fully realized yet it will be when he dies. In fact, in verses 20 and 21, Of that same chapter, Philippians 3, Paul says this, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has, even to subject all things to himself. He's saying, look, our citizenship isn't here on earth. It's in heaven. And as such, we eagerly wait our Savior to come back and get us the second coming, that great day, waiting for Christ to return. Why? What happens when Christ returns, Paul? Verse 20. Christ will transform the body of your humble estate, this earthly, fleshly body that gets sick, that breaks down, that has to be recharged, et cetera, et cetera. Humble state into conformity with what? The body of his glory. When Jesus rose from the dead, he had a different body. It was a glorified body. Paul's talking about us getting the same body that Jesus has. That's what's been promised to us. Paul is saying that we'll be in a glorified state with Jesus and the race will be over. The prize of the realization of our salvation will be fully realized in Christ. We will no longer be citizens of the earth and of this fleshly tent that struggles with sin. We will have realized the fullness of our eternal citizenship, which is in heaven. Where there is no time and there is no race. There is no start, and no finish. God exists outside of time. We will exist outside of time. Remember when I was talking when we were doing apologetics? Scientists say travel faster than the speed of life. Time ceases to exist. If celestial beings move from point A to point B, faster than the speed of light, time ceases to exist, which means they're in eternity. It's not so far-fetched when you really think about it. So, are we beginning to see what Paul means in these metaphors No matter where he uses the race metaphor and no matter what nuances he weaves into it, it always ends up in the same place, which is the coming to fruition of the full realization of our salvation in heaven. That's the prize. That's what he means when he says finishing the race. Now in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 through 9, this is my favorite, favorite Pauline passage, especially regarding this subject. Verse 7. I have fought the good fight. Past tense. I have finished the course. Past tense. I have kept the faith. Past tense. All the other times that Paul talks about the race, he talks about it in the present tense. He's still running. He's still pressing on for the prize. He doesn't want to be disqualified. He doesn't want to miss the mark. And now, at the end of his life, sitting in jail, talking to Timothy, he says, I fought the fight, finished the course, kept the faith. Verse 8, In the future there is laid up for me The crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. There's that day again. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. In other words, the full realization of Christ's perfect, sinless righteousness that was positionally imputed to Paul when God elected him before the foundations of the world will now finally be fully realized. Paul's at the end of his ministry. He has trained up Timothy to take over that ministry. But what's most beautiful about this passage is that Paul speaks of this as a done deal. I finished the course, kept the faith, then he starts speaking in a future tense. In the future, there it is laid up for me. Comes right out and says it. In the future, laid up for me, crown of righteousness. That's the prize. Righteous judge, Jesus imputed his righteousness to me. In Paul's mind, right here in this moment, he's crossed the finish line. The race for him, in his mind, is just about over. That's why he says, I finished the race. I've kept the faith. But you and me, we're still running the race, aren't we? Most of us are, at least. Some know that they're approaching the finish line, but as long as we are drawing breath in this earthly tent, we know that we're still, we're still in the race. So what should we be doing right now, given that fact? Well, <laughs> we should be running that's what you do in a race. You run, okay? Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, all these people, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Why, Paul? Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, he says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of, the, of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. And as he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, verse 3, consider him, that is Jesus who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You look to Jesus, who endured every suffering imaginable, and by looking at what he endured, and yet he finished the race, you could be motivated by that which motivated him and not grow weary and lose heart and lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. When I was preparing this sermon and chose to include Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2, I could not help but be struck by the phrase, easily entangles us it jumped out at me on the page I should say on the computer screen anyway it reminded me of hebrews again pastor steve's teaching hebrews on wednesday nights as most of you know but in the context of chapter three where the author of hebrews is talking about jesus as our high priest and he is doing so while talking about the disobedience of israel and in verse 10 he says they israel always go astray in their hearts that's where it starts with us doesn't it how do you get entangled in sin why did that jump out at me when I was preparing this because we get entangled he says it right here the Israelites are the example we get entangled by sin when we run after other things in our heart and we fix our eyes and our senses on other things besides Christ that's when we begin to go astray but when we keep our gaze in the race, fixed on the prize, Christ, we don't go stray. Sin doesn't easily entangle us, does it? Not when you're in the word and in prayer and in fellowship. Not so easy to become entangled. We're laying aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. So Don't allow yourselves to be like the Israelites and go astray in your hearts. Allow your hearts to meditate upon the author and perfecter of your faith, Christ Jesus, your Lord. Jesus begins to take a back seat in our lives. When we entertain covetousness. When we covet things that we shouldn't. When we covet things that we can't have. When we chase after things that God doesn't want us to have. Just give me a little bit of candy. I won't gain any more weight. Just give me a little bit of candy. I could cheat this week. Um, Just give me five minutes to digest this one little gossip morsel it goes down so beautifully. I love it. Just let me get away with one little white lie. It's just this one time, you know, Rahab, she, she lied, and she was blessed by God, and the midwives lied. They were blessed by God. Um, the time that I spend with my neighbor's husband, it's harmless. We're just, we're just friends. I could cheat on my taxes, you know, just this one time. After all, you know, they use my money, they use my tax money to support the National Endowment for the Arts and to, su- to support Planned Parenthood. I'll do godly things with this money I save if I could just cheat this one time on my taxes. So, same thing, I've seen people do it with homeowners insurance. Um, Trash a big part of their house. And yeah, call homeowners. Happened some other way than it really happened. And it's called insurance fraud. Um, our hearts go straight, folks. all I'm trying to say. Our hearts go straight. We start out on that tiny slippery slope. And then before we know it, we're like Israel. <laughs> Flying down the side of the mountain with no, no net to catch us. We go right off the cliff. So let's run the race with care you know why (laughs) because it's for keeps we're not playing around this is for real it's no joke you could go out here today and get hit with a truck hate to be the bearer of bad news but it happens every day multiple times a day let's talk about the initial question for a moment Where am I at on time, folks? Oh, I'm good. Okay. I'll actually finish this. Talk about the initial question, whether or not you can lose your salvation, right? Everybody, if I had a dollar for every time I heard somebody ask me that question, I could retire comfortably. In many Pentecostal and charismatic denominations, along with the Roman Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, the Methodists, certain Lutheran synods, but especially evangelical churches today in America, <clears throat> it is believed that one can be saved and then lose their salvation like your dog loses a tennis ball under the couch. All the denominations that I just mentioned have different ways and different means as to why and how they believe one can lose their salvation. This, they believe, despite the fact that Jesus said in John 6, verses 37 through 40, he said, all that the Father gives me that's you and me, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all, all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. There's that last day again. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who beholds the son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. So here's the question that many people have, and this is a run-on Puritan sentence, so follow me on this, okay? Here's the question. If someone doesn't finish the race, and instead they commit the sin of apostasy, spoken of in numerous Bible passages, does that mean that they were saved and they lost their salvation, or does it mean that they were never saved to begin with, as evidenced by the fact that they left the faith never to return to the faith again? That's the question. And the answer is in what we call the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. It is those that persevere to the end who are truly saved. And if you don't persevere to the end, if you don't finish the race and obtain the prize that Paul speaks of, that does not mean that you were saved and then you lost your salvation. It means that you were never saved to begin with. Thank you, Ashley. Thank you. Those that commit apostasy, those who walk away from the faith, never to return to the faith again, are those who were never saved to begin with, as evidenced by the fact that they did not persevere to the end. Like Paul alludes to, they were disqualified. That's his word, not mine. They were disqualified from the race because they never finished the race. John says, 1 John 2.19, they went out from us. I'm going to read this in the Amplified Version. It's a little bit wordier, but it gives us the essence of the meaning. John says, they went out from us, seeming at first to be Christians, but they were not really of us, because they weren't truly born again and spiritually transformed. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be clearly shown that none of them are of us. So, in essence, they left because they were never part of us, the Christian life, Christian transformation to begin with. Okay? In the context of 1 John, These guys, he's talking about the Gnostics, okay? They not only claimed to be Christians, but they were teachers in the church. They were false teachers, but they were teachers. Gnosticism was something that even the early church fathers all the way up through the 4th century had to deal with time and time again. Now, Jesus said, "On that day, many will say to me, "Lord, Lord, didn't we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you evildoers." Matthew 7:21 through23. Do you know him, church? Can you say with the apostle Paul, I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and the life that I now live in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Galatians 2.20. Did you live your life by faith in the Son of God? Do you live your life now by faith in the Son of God? If you do, the prize is yours when you finish the race. Does that make sense? Now, I know people aren't prone to putting their hands up. Half of our church is on vacation, so only half of you are voting. But uh, does anybody want me to do a whole sermon on the whole losing your salvation, eternal security thing? Show of hands. If you don't, we'll just move on in Corinthians. Okay, everybody's, everybody's good? Okay. Um, if you have any more questions, because I just scratched the surface on this subject. I mean, we could do a series very long series on eternal security so if you have any more questions just call me come up to me after the service email me i'll be glad to answer any questions that you you have let's pray